Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper, and we start today with our health lead. And while there are encouraging signs that more Americans are getting vaccinated against coronavirus, there is also worrying new data out today showing how great the threat still is. The highly contagious Delta variant now makes up more than 93% of all new cases in the United States. That's according to the CDC. The number of Americans dying from COVID every day is up 42% from just last week. And hospitalizations are three times higher than one month ago. And we know vaccines are the best way to stop the spread. But combating misinformation about the vaccines is still one of the greatest challenges for health officials. And the new poll out today shows that among unvaccinated Americans, 53% think getting the shot is a bigger risk to their health than catching COVID, 53%. Adding to the confusion, the contradictory messages coming from the Biden administration. As CNN's Kristen Holmes reports, from vaccine mandates to masking, the nation's top doctors are having a tough time staying on the same page. As the Delta variant rages across the country, Americans are struggling to understand how to best protect themselves and others. He misspoke. The top health officials in the Biden administration only adding to the confusion with a series of contradictory messages from masks to mandates. The communication about who should wear a mask causing whiplash. You have the opportunity to make the personal choice to add extra layers of protection if you so choose. Just days after the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said masks for the fully vaccinated were an individual choice, a complete 180. In areas with substantial and high transmission, CDC recommends fully vaccinated people wear masks in public indoor settings to help prevent the spread of the Delta variant and protect others. Walensky saying new data was the reason for the shift, data not seen by the public for days causing speculation and confusion. This week, a comment by the head of the National Institutes of Health left parents scratching their heads. And that at home, our parents of unvaccinated kids should be thoughtful about this, and the recommendation is to wear masks there as well. I know that's uncomfortable. I know it seems weird, but it is the best way to protect your kids. Dr. Collins tweeting a correction, but ultimately Dr. Fauci had to play cleanup. Parents do not need to wear masks in their own home. That is the right answer. Dr. Collins said he misspoke, and I give him great credit for admitting it very, very quickly of saying that he misspoke. Messaging over a vaccine mandate, no clearer. Just a day after the White House COVID-19 response coordinator told CNN the administration was not considering a nationwide vaccine mandate, the CDC director contradicted him. Are you for mandating a vaccine? on a federal level. Um, You know, that's something that I think the administration is looking into. Remarks later backtracked in a tweet, reading, 
To clarify, there will be no nationwide mandate. I was referring to mandates by private institutions and portions of the federal government. There will be no federal mandate. And while booster shots appeared to be off the table just last week... I want to be very clear. People do not need to go out and get a booster shot. Right now, they are certain that no Americans need boosters. It's unclear for how long. I think it's very possible that we're going to require boosters, and it's possible we're going to know that uh, fairly soon. And a senior administration official tells me that this is the result of evolving science, that the Delta variant is part of the reason you're seeing these changes, and this might seem like a back and forth. And one thing I want to note here that is incredibly important is there is one thing that all health officials have remained consistent on, even though there's some confusion, and that is get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Americans need the vaccine. It is the best way to protect yourself and to protect others, Pamela. And that was the big message we heard from President Biden yesterday as he was trying to reset the messaging as well for the administration. All right, Kristen, thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss is Michael Osterholm, the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Great to see you, Michael. So we just heard thank there. You. Uh, Kristen, detail some of the really confusing messages coming from top officials in the Biden administration. What kind of impact does that have on public confidence? Well, it is a challenge, and particularly when, in fact, the media then accentuates it by saying this person versus that person versus that person. Not that they shouldn't, but that only makes it more confusing. I think the challenge we have right now is, as it was noted, is we're in a stage of what I call corrected science, meaning that we're learning about a lot of things as we go, and we don't have the luxury of going and publish them or putting together advisory groups and then coming out months later with a recommendation. You're getting it pretty much as it happens. And so I think this is going to always be a challenge, but we've got to do a a much better job of trying to coordinate these messages. A good example is, well, we're going to need a booster. Well, we're waiting to see what happens as we get more and more people who are vaccinated six, eight, nine months out from their vaccine. And then and only then will we know if we need a booster. Uh, And so we should just expect that we're going to continue to see corrected science occurring. And adding to that confusion, other countries are giving booster shots. And even here in the U.S., um, hospitals on their own are starting to do that. So all of that also adds to this um, confusing picture in this evolving pandemic. And there's also confusion when it comes to protecting kids, especially with some states banning mask mandates in school. So bottom line here, Michael, what do parents need to know right now about keeping their kids as protected as possible from this virus? We just have to tell parents the truth, even if it's not easy, even if we don't have all the answers. For example, we do know that children do transmit the virus to each other. We do know that they can get infected, and we do know that children can transmit the virus at home to mom and dad, older brothers and sisters, or younger brothers and sisters, and even grandpa and grandma. We don't have a perfect way to protect them. You're absolutely right. Right now, the vaccines, as you know, are only approved for those 12 years of age and older. They're coming, but it's still a long ways off. Uh, Second of all is the fact that uh, when we try to talk about protecting children with masks, we know that the kind of face cloth coverings that kids wear may have some benefit, but it's surely not the same level of benefit we'd like them to have as if you were an adult and wearing an N95 mask. And so the bottom line message is that when schools open in a few weeks, uh, we're going to expect to see some challenges and we're going to see transmission. And we just have to acknowledge that the good news, if there is any good news, and it's only, I think, a hint of good news, is that kids don't get nearly as sick as often as do adults or their older siblings. And that's, that's the one thing we can count on right now. 
So just to be clear, when it comes to the Delta variant, even though we're seeing more cases among kids, we still don't know, though, if it's any more dangerous toward kids, right? We just don't have that data. Right. The reason we're seeing so many new cases in kids right now appears to be just that the virus is transmitting that much more. So instead of 100 kids being sick in a, a school district or in a neighborhood area, it's a 500 kids. And now of those, the same proportion may be going to the hospital more severely ill. Uh, at this point, we can't say it's anything other than that. But it's very possible we may find that, in fact, two, twice as many kids are seriously ill as, as we saw before. But those data right now are just not forthcoming. And there are still so many kids unvaccinated um, and people who are uh, millions of Americans who are choosing not to get vaccinated, even though they're eligible. Your new analysis shows that almost every single unvaccinated American who hasn't gotten COVID yet is likely to catch it. How soon could that happen? Well, as I've said time and time again for months, this virus is highly infectious. If you decide to try to run the game clock out, don't try to do it. This virus will find you. It will infect you eventually. And we just have to give people that sense. Now, if that's not enough to motivate people to get vaccinated, then the only other things I think we have are the mandates that say, okay, if you're going to work here, you're going to go here or do this, you have to get vaccinated. The reason we also want people vaccinated, it's not just us trying to tell you we're trying to protect you. But if you are a case and you become infectious, you do two things. One is you pose a risk to others, including your own loved ones. But number two is you're also using hospital resources right now, which in many instances are very, very short in coming, particularly if you look at the southern Sunbelt states. They're at a real challenge right now for healthcare resources. And, you know, we started this conversation, Michael, talking about just how quickly uh, this pandemic changes and why the messaging has to change so quickly. And that is largely because new variants can come about. Today, Dr. Fauci said a variant worse than Delta could be coming. You've warned that the next variant could be, quote, Delta on steroids. What do you mean by that? Well, basically, the variants that we're concerned about uh, in terms of uh, their increased risk to humans have one of three characteristics, or all three. One is they're more infectious, which we know Delta is substantially more infectious even than Alpha, which that by itself was more infectious. Number two, that they can cause more severe illness, just related to the question you just asked about does it cause more severe illness for the number of people who are infected? And number three, does it have a way of evading immune uh, protection? Is it somehow get around the vaccines or get around the protection you get from natural infection? And any one of those three characteristics could make another variant worse. Uh, and if you add all of them together, it could be worse. We don't have any evidence right now we have one that's worse, but I agree with Dr. Fauci that it surely is possible that one that could be more infectious than Delta, which would be hard to imagine that being the case, could actually happen. And we have to be prepared for that. Okay, Mike Osterholm, thank you so much for thank you. Uh, your analysis and perspective on this. Thank you. And in addition to mixed messages, there's also a bunch of different rules. CNN went inside one school where kids can decide whether to wear a mask. Plus, brand new reporting revealing just how close some top Trump officials came to quitting. That's next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the future looks grim for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. CNN can now confirm a majority of New York State Assembly members say they would vote yes to impeach him if articles of impeachment are introduced. This comes after the state's attorney general released a damning report 
detailing how the governor sexually harassed 11 women and created a hostile work environment. Let's bring in CNN's Erica Hill. So, Erica, the governor says he won't resign. Is this all but certain? Uh, so he says he will not resign. We have not heard anything more from the governor today. He's really laying low, putting out a press release about a COVID update, uh, but not addressing anything further from the report. Here's where we stand, though. If the governor does not resign, we know that there's this impeachment inquiry we've heard so much about. CNN has been reaching out to state lawmakers. And I can tell you that uh, 80 members now, both Democrats and Republicans, tell CNN they would vote yes to impeach if articles of impeachment were introduced. Now, keep in mind how it works here is the assembly would vote then on those articles of impeachment. There are 150 members uh, of the assembly. 106 of them are Democrats. Again, 80 have told CNN they would vote to impeach if the articles were introduced. Uh, They would need a majority. That would be 76 members to vote. Uh, If that happens, then, of course, there would be a trial. Uh, That would be in the New York Senate, along with the judges from the Court of Appeals. Uh, Listen, there is a lot of discussion about whether the governor, whether the governor, while he is holding strong here and refusing to resign at this point, whether he would really want to go through an impeachment process and how much that may be weighing on his decision as we hear more and more calls, Pamela, for him to resign. And there are now at least four district attorneys who've requested materials from the AG's office in order to possibly pursue criminal charges. That's another part of this. What are you hearing? Yeah, that's right. So in the state, we know that the district attorneys in Albany, Nassau, and Westchester counties, as well as here in Manhattan, they have all requested information from the state attorney general uh, to look further and see if there could be any criminal charges. Uh, They have cited between them uh, both comments from Trooper Number 1 and Executive Assistant Number 1 in some of those requests. All right, Erica Hill, thanks for bringing us the latest. And also today, new details showing how close top Trump Justice Department officials were to resigning just days before the insurrection, amid increasing pressure from then-President Trump to investigate the results of the presidential election. CNN's Evan Perez joins me live. What more are you learning, Evan? Well, Pamela, this was a, uh, there was a resignation letter that was written by Patrick Hobakimian, who was uh, chief of staff to the then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, and as you pointed out, this is this is how close things were. It was January third. Uh, President Trump had had Rosen coming over to the White House, uh, and everyone thought that Rosen was going to get fired simply because the Justice Department was refusing to say that there was fraud in the Georgia election or in elections in all the investigations into the election. Uh, the letter, which was written but never sent, and I'll read you just a part of it, says that over the course of the last week. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen had repeatedly refused the president's direct instructions to utilize the Department of Justice law enforcement powers for improper ends. And again, the anticipation was that Rosen was going to be fired. Now, just to set the the table here, Mm -hmm. January 3rd is the day, it's a Sunday, uh, President Trump had Rosen and another official, Jeffrey Clark, come over to the White House where he had some kind of like a, something straight out of a reality TV show, some, something like The Apprentice, where these two men essentially vied for the job. And, and the, the anticipation was that if Rosen was fired, Hovokimian and a number of other officials were going to resign en masse uh, in protest uh, of this move. Wow. So Rosen wasn't fired. He wasn't fired. But it seems as though a lot of officials in the Justice Department expected. And it just shows you, your reporting shows you how high tensions were and how much pushback there was within the Justice Department against these coup attempts 
frankly, it was uh, by, by the former president, that's, weaponizing the Justice Department. Right. This is a perfect, that's a perfect word to use for this because it was essentially what these officials were fighting back against. And now, Hova Kimian was interviewed uh, yesterday by the House Oversight Committee. We expect that a number of these other officials are going to be coming in for interviews in the coming days, and we'll see what more we can learn uh, from what they were experiencing in those extraordinary days. I have a feeling there's a lot more. We both covered DOJ. We, we know there's probably a we lot more to uncover. More. Evan Perez, thanks so much. And up next, two special elections that are revealing a lot about the Republican and Democratic parties. We're going to discuss right after this. And we are back with our politics lead. If you're wondering what to expect in next year's midterm elections, just take a look at what happened in Ohio last night. Starting with the Democrats, voters in the 11th Congressional District handed a victory to the establishment candidate, Chantel Brown, by a margin of more than 4,000 votes. Brown was backed by Hillary Clinton, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, and the Congressional Black Caucus. She beat progressive candidate Nina Turner, a longtime Bernie Sanders ally, who now famously compared voting for Biden to eating a bowl of human excrement. Sorry to remind you about that. Um, So on that note, Allison, (laughs) let's kick it off with you here. So, I mean, it really is interesting seeing how this played out in Ohio, right? We were all watching this, you know, because we hear Republicans often talk about how Democrats are these um, liberal socialists, right? But then you see Brown's win in Ohio, as well as Eric Adams in New York City. President Biden sure doesn't seem like progressives have control of the Democratic Party. Well, as an Ohioan, (laughs) I I think Ohio voters are very far from socialism. Um, If you look at the district in which uh, Brown and Turner were running, that was former Secretary Secretary Fudge's district. Before that, uh, Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, very um, Democratic uh, black women, Northeast working class folks. Um, Nina Turner has had success in the state, but it's not um, uh, her progressive uh, agenda just didn't seem to resonate with voters. So it's not that voters don't support her, but when put up against Brown, I think that she, Brown just resonated more for that part of Cleveland. But do you think it's just that part, that district, or do you think it's a broader? I think it's a broader yeah. trend because. In the Democratic Party, you at least have a battle going on about who's going to control it, and it's about ideology. You've got the Sanders wing, which Turner represented, versus the Biden wing, shall we say, the moderates. Jim Clyburn, very influential here, and the moderates have been winning. In the Republican Party, you don't have any battle at all about ideology. It's all about whether you are beholden to the orange god king or not. And, and there aren't too many. It's not much. ideological right. at all. And, and there aren't very many who are non-Trumpy. I mean, there are occasional people. There's a guy, Craig Snyder, who just uh, announced in Pennsylvania for the Senate race there, who's sort of explicitly non-Trumpy. But uh, those candidates are hard to find. Yeah, and I mean, the, the Republican who won in Ohio. Uh, yeah, Trump yeah I mean, he, exactly. And he, he was endorsed by Trump. Uh, Trump, after, the, after Susan Wright, who he endorsed last mm-hmm. week in a Texas special election, lost. They really doubled down financially and otherwise um, to, to get this guy through. Yeah, to me, there's not really like, it's often painted as, oh, there's a fight within the Republican Party. Not really. No. Donald Trump no. controls the Republican does, Party. Absolutely. I mean, like, yes, occasionally someone else will win. This guy who won last week in Texas is a state rep 
who had a base in the district. Right. You know, I mean, there, yeah. there are special situations, but if you're saying, would you rather have Donald Trump's endorsement in a contested Republican primary or not? The answer is yes. One stat, this isn't mine, Ballotpedia has this. Contested Republican primaries that Donald Trump endorsed in, in 2020, 21 and 2. Wow. Which tells you yeah. everything you need to know. And yeah. nothing yeah. nothing has changed. Which, the, the, and the, the fact money. that they're so... He's got $100 million yep. that he's been able to raise, mostly from small donors. But one thing on that, he's not going to be spending it on those candidates. Just to oh, be clear. Yeah. Not, he, I mean, that money... Donald Trump controls the Republican Party. You want his endorsement. But don't fool yourself into thinking that Donald Trump is about anyone else other than Donald Trump. The reason Donald Trump spent money on Mike Carey is because Donald Trump didn't want two straight losses in special no, elections. Exactly. I mean, let's not... Yeah. But we, we've learned that, that over the last yeah. five but, years. But that very thing will motivate him to spend nope. money in a few other places. Absolutely. But I would say on the Democratic side, you had people, national figures, coming into that district endorsing Nina Turner. You also had a national figure in Jim Clyburn mm-hmm. coming in to endorse Brown. I actually don't think that played a part. I think that these races are localized efforts. If you look at Eric Adams, Amaya Wiley, they also had, uh, she had a very national focused campaign, but it was the local endorsements, I think, in the Democratic Party that go a long way. And I think that is what the Democrats need to do in 22. And you're seeing, I mean, even though this was seen as a win for more, you know, the establishment, moderate Democrats, progressives also have had a win this week, Sung Men. I mean, you saw that this effort led by Cori Bush mm-hmm. um, on the eviction moratorium. Now the White House reversed course under pressure, although um, it's legally dubious whether it's going to succeed. <laughs> right. um, but, I mean, that shows that they still carry a lot of weight. Right. Well, there's two big kind of takeaways from that episode. First of all, um, the squad. You know, so Cori Bush, AOC, others have shown how they can marshal that power within Capitol Hill to get policies done immediately as they have this narrow majority in the House and the White House and obviously the Senate as well. Uh, but at the same time, there will be practical effects from, you know, a moderate such as Ms. Brown winning um, last night in Ohio because we can take we can have the takeaways for in these off-year elections for what may portend next year or whatnot. But, you know, the, the actual election is later this November. Nancy Pelosi has a very narrow majority in the House. And if you're Nancy Pelosi, do you want a Nina Turner? As one of your few, uh, as one of the few members of your majority, of your very thin majority, or Chantel Brown, I mean, I think it's fair to say Nina Turner would have been a very uh, loud member of the squad and could have been a thorn. Do you in think it would side. have gone differently? This decision about the the evictions thing. Do you think that would have gone differently if the election had been the day before and they had already learned that Chantel Brown was going to defeat hmm. Nina Turner? I think the um, I, I think the eviction moratorium result was very um, kind of inside Washington mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of the pressure that Congresswoman Bush and others built on the on the Biden administration. I'm not quite sure what the Ohio results would have done with that, but it's certainly you do have these two kind of very interesting, uh, sometimes complementary, sometimes conflicting dynamics within the Democratic well, Party. Well, and it, it does, but it does weaken the squad and the progressives. What happened with Chantel Brown? Right. I mean, it, it, it has to. I don't. I, I don't so. so I don't. I think what you saw Tuesday was relatively representative, unlike the Republican Party, where I, there isn't a fight. I actually do think there's like a legitimate disagreement about between younger, more liberal activist Democrats and older, more establishment Democrats. And, and as we saw, by the way, with uh, Jim Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus, it's not people. It's not white versus black. It, it's this, this is much more about sort of how you approach politics. No, and in fact, and the I Jewish voters went for Chantel, for Chantel Brown, Brown in big numbers. And so, I think that's a real fight that both sides. Yes, I mean, I did, without Cory Bush on the doing a sit-in, I don't. You know, maybe Biden changes, but I'm not mm. sure he does. And quite clearly, 
the moderate candidate won in Ohio. So I think you can point to, and I think if we went back six months or even back a year, yes, Joe Biden beat Bernie Sanders. That was the big one. Mm -hmm. But I think there are wins each way here. And again, we're not talking about I'm going to, an old name, John Bro, a very, very, very moderate to conservative Democrat. That's not Eric Adams. That's not uh, Chantel, Chantel Brown. These are people who are pretty liberal. We're talking about gradations that are pretty small. But it was evictions. It's in yes. the middle of a pandemic. It's an issue that actually hits voters' hearts. And I think you have to do the right thing because real people who have to vote in 2022 and in 2024 are going to lose their, lose their homes if something yeah, wasn't that's done. That's true. All right, Ashley, Chris, Mona, Sungmin, uh, thank you all so much. And Justin, a big new vaccine mandate expected as soon as this week, impacting tens of thousands of Americans. The breaking details up next. Breaking news in our health lead, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is expected to make the coronavirus vaccine mandatory for all active duty troops. CNN's Barbara Starr is live at the Pentagon. So, Barbara, how, could, how soon could this announcement happen? Well, the indications we're getting, Pamela, is the announcement could happen by the end of the week. Not a big surprise, we have to say. Let's explain. You'll recall that last week, President Biden ordered the Pentagon to take a look at how and when to make the vaccine mandatory for active duty troops. Secretary Austin said he wasn't going to let grass grow under his feet. He was going to get after it. So he's been talking to the services, talking to the medical experts about a way ahead on how to make the COVID vaccine mandatory. Not exactly the Pentagon's first plan. They had hoped to wait uh, until the FDA had that full approval for the vaccines. But the president's the president. He made the decision he wants to move ahead, and that's what the Pentagon is going to do. Uh, you know, military members have any number of vaccines they are required to get. Uh, as a term of their military service. The Pentagon doesn't think there's going to be widespread opposition to it. Right now, they're running about 60% full vaccination rate across the U.S. military. But they're going to have to take a little time, figure out exactly how they want to do this, which will be the first units, which will be the first troops to get the vaccination once the decision is made. Pamela? Okay, Barbara Starr, thanks for bringing us the latest from the Pentagon. And this week, students are back in school in Georgia, and the state is a case study in what in-person classes may look like nationwide at this stage of the pandemic. Some counties requiring masks, others make them optional. CNN's Nick Valencia has the debate dividing one conservative community right outside of Atlanta. Good morning, everybody. Dale Simpson is the principal at Borrow Arts and Sciences Academy in rural Georgia, where this week the school year started without a mask mandate. Good morning, Blazers. We could not be more excited to see you this morning. There's often butterflies on the first day of school, especially these days. But for Simpson, the feeling is more sense of relief, even while the pandemic rages on. Are you putting students at risk by not requiring masks? You know, I think that in our school system, we're really honoring the parents and the students' personal decisions. And to those who say those personal decisions are making others less safe, what do you say? You know, one thing that um, we are doing as a school system is monitoring the numbers. Outside a drop-off, most parents we spoke to in Barrow County, a conservative community between Atlanta and Athens, weren't worried about wearing masks, even with COVID cases on the rise in the county with a seven-day average of more than 20 cases per day. 
The area is listed on the CDC tracker as having a high community transmission rate, where masks are recommended for everyone in public indoor settings. But parents like Miriam Robinson told us not wearing a mask gives her 14-year-old daughter the freedom to express herself. Does that freedom of expression outweigh the concern you have about them getting sick? I honestly am not very concerned about them getting sick. Why is that? Even after, even after you see the you know, hospitalizations go up and the, and the yeah, data out there? I haven't seen that very much with children, though. The American Academy of Pediatrics reported Tuesday almost 72,000 children and teens caught COVID-19 last week nationwide. They called it a substantial increase from a week earlier. Kennedy Momin's mom wasn't about to let her daughter take any chances. Have you met anyone around here that thinks that this is just a you know hoax or that this is a phony pandemic? I've talked to a couple people yeah. that say you tell them it's real. You need to put your mask on. <laughs> Inside, her daughter Kennedy told us while she felt safe, she was caught off guard by how few of her classmates were taking the same precautions. I didn't know that many people would like not be wearing masks. You know, it's really different because everybody was wearing masks last time we had to. I think being an African-American and understanding what the pandemic did to that demographic, um, kids are well aware that they don't want to take those things home back to their families. Language arts teacher Yashina Lyles not only teaches here, her eighth grade son started the school year here in person. She thinks it should be up to students and teachers if they want to wear masks for her the decision is case by case. I think other schools need to learn that with the proper precautions, the proper safety procedures, that it is okay to return back to the classroom and allow your students and their kids to get a quality education. For Principal Simpson, the hope is students will learn this year in person without getting themselves or anyone else sick, mask or not. This is a complex issue. And what we're doing here is we're making decisions in the best interest of our kids while honoring parental decision making. The principal tells us that they have not ruled out in stating a mass mandate if COVID cases should go up. There is concern about the Delta variant, which is why the school has established an online academy for parents who are uncomfortable sending their kids in person. But as you saw there in the piece, Pamela, most decided not only to show up in person, they did so without wearing a mask. Pamela? Yeah, that was such a fascinating, illuminating inside look at that school there in Georgia. Thank you, Nick Valencia. And coming up right here on The Lead, CNN obtained footage of a potential prison camp with cameras, electrified fences, surrounded by forest. Where it is and who it might be for, next. In our world lead, a possible prison camp deep in the woods of Belarus with guards and three layers of electrified barbed wire. The future prisoners? Opponents of President Alexander Lukashenko, who's hanging on to his almost 30-year tyrannical grip on power. It's a resistance emboldened by huge protests last year following Lukashenko's disputed election win and renewed by an opposition activist's mysterious death this week in a Ukrainian park. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh takes us as close to the site as possible, despite Lukashenko's henchmen patrolling nearby. A chilling sight, not from the last century, but last month. A possible prison camp built inside Belarus for political prisoners. CNN obtained this footage of what witnesses said looked like a newly refurbished camp about an hour's drive from the capital, Minsk. A new sign saying, forbidden border and entry. 
A three-layer fence, electrified, they said. New moving surveillance cameras, bars and reflective screens on the windows of newly rebuilt barracks. No prisoners yet, what looked like a soldier inside and regular military patrols who told our witnesses outside to leave. One local talked to them anonymously. My friend Sasha, a builder, told me they've refurbished this place, he says. There are three levels of barbed wire and it's electrified. I was picking mushrooms here when a military man came up to me and said I can't walk here. The buildings sit on the vast site of a former Soviet missile storage facility surrounded by forest. The repairs came not long after defecting police officers released secret recordings of senior police discussing the need for prison camps at several sites. The assignment? To develop and build a camp, but not for prisoners of war or even the interned, but a camp for the especially sharp-hooved for resettlement and surround it with barbed wire along the perimeter. Unsurprisingly, CNN hasn't gained access to the interior of the site, so we can't definitively say that it is intended for use as a prison camp. But a Western intelligence official I spoke to said that use was, quote, possible, although they didn't have direct evidence. In the current climate, it's tough to imagine what else the camp could be for. Opposition leaders fear its possible use by President Alexander Lukashenko's forces during future protests. It's not surprising that he's trying to build uh, something like a regular prison camp because um, the new wave of protest will come up anyway. It can be triggered by his statement, it can be triggered by economic situation, but it will come. And he understands and he also wants to be prepared more than last year in 2020. So this is why I will not be surprised if such camps are being built. Belarusian officials declined to comment and have called the recording about camps fake news when it was released, saying they followed the law. These images emerge after a weeks-long crackdown against remaining independent media inside Belarus and dozens of arrests. Inside Belarus, the protest movement's been persecuted so hard, it now holds remote flash mob demonstrations like these, filmed by drones. But some of it is finding ways to hit back, CNN has learned. These are railway saboteurs, apparently in action. They say their operations, the details of which we aren't disclosing, just trigger alarms that stop trains on the tracks, risking nobody's safety and causing traffic to slow down, they say. We spoke to one organiser. When our skies are blocked, he said, we should block the land as well. The main goal is to cause economic damage to the regime because all the delays cause them to pay huge fines. This action was carried out, they said, on a key route from Russia to the European Union. CNN can't independently confirm it was effective. If there is an impact on rail traffic, it could have great significance outside of Belarus and here, Lithuania, because so many goods from the east rely on this network to get to Europe. Signs both sides could be adopting new, harsher tactics and what may await fresh protests as the screws tighten. Possible opposition sabotage, possible authoritarian government, prison camps. It's startling, Pamela, just in one year how ugly this unrest has got. And there are concerns. You saw there how the protest movement's been crushed, but there will potentially be an anniversary uh, in August, which sees more crowds on the streets and another referendum possibly ahead to real concerns. That prison camp, as it seemed there, may actually be maintained for a reason. Pam? Mm. CNN's Nick Pitton-Walsh, thank you. Excellent reporting. Well, a passenger duct taped to a seat after throwing punches. We're going to show you what else happened up next.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.